of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. I'm glad you could be with us. Today, we're going to take a look back at uh, a, a recent trip I made to Bolivia, along with the good uh, friends at Witness for Peace and our uh, perennial guest, Mr. Sanjo Tree, who was uh, one of those who helped uh, blaze the trail, if you will, in Bolivia. And we're going to bring him on here in just a second. I, I first want to preface this by something. I... Uh, when I first joined this, I thought I was going to bring a lot of knowledge to the the people on this venture. I thought I was going to, you know, uh, be the expert. And I want to tell you, I was the novice. I was the greenhorn. I learned a whole bunch uh, from Witness for Peace and from this trip to Bolivia. Though it did help to uh, underline, validate, substantiate, and uh, scream out that everything I've been saying about this drug war... And its impact on this planet is absolutely right. And uh, with that, I want to go ahead and bring in our guest, Mr. Sanho Tree. Hello, Dean. Hello, Sanho. I hear you're a bit under the weather. Oh, touch of the flu, yeah. <laughs> and I, I had uh, a bit of the revenge myself on uh, my return, but we'll both get over it. And we had it. We learned a lot, did we not? Oh, it was an extraordinary trip. Uh, just, just wonderful. Well, if you will. Uh, Kind of just outline uh, who, where we went, who we visited with. Uh, tell us a, a little summary of the trip. Well, we started out in the lowlands of uh, Bolivia in a place called Santa Cruz, which is where a lot of the natural gas and a lot of the uh, agriculture wealth of the country uh, resides. And it's kind of a secessionist-leading uh, area. They have the wealth, and they kind of want they want autonomy from the rest of the country. It's also a very conservative area. And then from there we went uh, up a little bit to the Chapare region, which is where a lot of the uh, the coca is being grown. Uh, very underdeveloped area and uh, a very conflicted area in the past with the drug war because all the coca in the Chapare was deemed to be illegal at, at, uh, at one point. And from there we went to Cochabamba, which is the second biggest city in, in, in uh, Bolivia. Uh, kind of a medium altitude, beautiful city. Um, and from there, we went to Oruro, which is up way up in the highlands, uh, in the mountains at the tip of the Andes, um, the mining area. And we, you know, visited with some uh, miners who were in some conflict there. Uh, and then from there, uh, continued on in the, in, the, in the high plains toward La Paz, where we finally ended the trip. And we ended, um, La Paz is around 13,000 feet. It's about two and a half miles above sea level. So we had quite a bit of altitude, and uh, you know we got to chew a lot of coca, uh, and yeah, basically had to. Otherwise, you would get sick from the altitude. As as I recall, you you had quite a quite a time adjusting. <laughs> I did indeed. I I did, and and I was actually kind of saved that one afternoon. I was a little bit lost in the marketplace. I ran into you, and you happened to have a a, a coca candy which uh, helped, I guess, get the oxygen flowing again and helped me get back to the hotel. I mean, it's if fo folks who haven't been there just cannot quite understand this. But uh, at those altitudes without the coca, indeed, you are rather feeble, uh, just kind of flailing along. Absolutely. And, in fact, the U.S. Embassy on its website, I don't know if it still does this or not, but as of a year ago, it certainly recommended to travelers that when you land in La Paz, they recommended that you drink coca tea to help you fight uh, fight off the altitude sickness. 
And you know it's bad when your you know plane lands in La Paz and they open the door and the plane decompresses. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that giant sucking sound. It, it was like the the plane suddenly was three football fields long. I, exactly. I, exactly. Uh, uh, well, let's let's talk about that. I, I've. Uh, Spoken to you know a few folks at uh, Thanksgiving dinner this this week, and to others uh, that I've met along the way, and and I tell them that I think just about everyone we met, from the justice minister through the Christian ministers, the uh, military, the prison guards, and the prisoners, were all chewing coca to uh, to uh, manage to to get through the day. Absolutely, uh, everyone chews coca down there, and and if you're rich, maybe you drink it in, in tea. You know, in your silver tea service, but uh, everyone consumes coca to one extent or another. It's it's, it's quite common. It, it's so central to indigenous cultures that in the uh, Aymara uh, um, tribe in the highlands, uh, there's even a unit unit of of measure called the cocada, which is the amount of t uh, time it takes to to chew a wad of coca in your mouth when you're walking from one place to another. So it becomes a, a distance measurement. You know, that's how central it is. That every every religious offering, every ceremony uh, begins with coca. And I, um, I, you know, again, I'd heard this. Uh, you just kind of believe it's, uh, I, I, uh, to be honest, you know, just some sort of hype, you know, that heck, it couldn't be that prevalent. But indeed it is. Now, this is, uh, I think, millennia uh, in its making, this, this tradition, this use. And, uh, and yet the U.S. government wants to make these uh, coca growers turn them uh, their faces into that of narco traffickers let's talk about how the u.s drug war impacts the just those cappuccinos out there yeah those of us in the reform movement have been arguing for regulation rather than prohibition and we're seeing that put into practice by the government of evo morales um, and this is not very this is very upsetting to a lot of drug warriors who don't want to see this work but in fact it is it is working in many ways um, it's the coca grower unions themselves that have fought for this area of measurement called the kato which is a traditional uh, unit of measure it's about forty meters by forty meters uh... and so they want each uh, coca grower to be able to have their own kato and with that um, they can they can earn about seventy to a hundred dollars hundred twenty dollars a month that's enough to get by on for your basic necessities it's, it, you won't get rich off of it but it'll at least you'll be able to support your family and, and be able to send your kids to school and the u.s. is saying that's too much uh... there's no way you can uh, police that but in fact it's the coca growers themselves that are, that are the unions that are working with the joint task force to to eradicate excess coca and so these coca growers are making sure that their neighbors aren't growing too much so that everyone has a fair share um, and with that they're able to regulate uh... the the use of coca so that it's used for traditional purposes and and they 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 cooperate with the joint task force to make sure that's not being diverted into cocaine uh... some of it still invariably does wind up in the illicit market but but basically that that it doesn't affect the u.s. much at all uh... about only about five percent of, of bolivian cocaine actually winds up in the united states the rest goes to brazil argentina to europe uh... but very little makes it to the u.s. And uh, now speaking, speaking of um, the the diversion making its way to the U.S., um, I, was it um, Mr. Evo Morales that said uh, the U.S. needs to constrain their demand? Uh, that uh, it's not their fault 
that that the U.S. has this demand for the powder. Your, your thoughts on that? Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, even when we're talking about uh, so-called high elected officials, we have a president who supported uh, many terrorists, according to his uh, ONDCV's ad campaign, you know, one gram at a time in, in his youth. Um, this is a president who had a very, you know, great fondness for the nose candy. Uh, so if it reaches that high up, uh, when you have even Republican senators like Lincoln Chafee admitting to long-term cocaine use in the past, um, it, it, demand permeates our society. And as long as there's demand, there's going to be supply out there. Because when you look at a country like Bolivia, which is the poorest country in South America, where you know uh, three-quarters of the people live on less than $2 a day, uh, and many of them live on less than $1 a day, uh, there's simply too much land available to grow these illicit crops and an inexhaustible reservoir of poor people, um, not only in Latin America, but all over the planet, willing to grow these kinds of crops. And in between the Poor people and, and the demand are a bunch of, of narco-traffickers willing to take advantage of that situation and make a fortune doing it. And, and we saw perhaps the glimmer of those fortunes in, in cities like Santa Cruz where there's a, a, a constant uh, construction, new buildings and high-rises and, and so forth. And if I dare say, uh, a lot of the money used for that construction has been uh, uh, made through... Uh, cocaine distribution. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, certainly, yeah, certainly more in, 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 in past years when the cocaine boom was at its height in, in Bolivia. Um, it's, it's, you know, a lot of it has been pushed up into Colombia, so we have a whole new mess to deal with up there. Um, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of narco dollars floating around uh, these societies. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, Sanjo, if I, uh, I'd like to inquire your thoughts. Uh, you, you say there's been a change that a lot of the growth is now moved to Colombia? Is that right? Correct. Um, you know, a decade or two ago, the, the main producers were in, in Bolivia and Peru. Um, and Co uh, Colombia did a lot of the processing of the, of the coca paste. But now that we've, you know, squeezed on the, in the eradication fight on, on Bolivia and Peru in the, in the past years, we've pushed the cultivation of coca directly into Colombia. And so Colombia now produces the coca leaf as well as processes the refined cocaine. I, I think of the uh, balloon effect. Uh, you've uh, kind of explained that to the audience before, and maybe you, you can do more of that. But I, I see a direct result of that. I think I saw a story in the last few days indicating that in Colombia they were uh, exalting the fact that they had just uh, wiped out the last commercial uh, opium uh, production there. I think it was 12 hectares or something to that effect. <laughs> and And... and the whole point being that now some perhaps 99% of the heroin or the co the opium is being grown in Afghanistan. Yeah, and I still don't believe that those numbers about Colombia either. Colombia, you know, um, you just you know, the past couple of years, half the East Coast, more than half the East Coast heroin has come from Colombia. Um, it, you know, they may have gotten rid of the, the big, uh, large size plantations of poppies, but there's still lots of poppies, and, and that's traditionally how they're grown in small plots, not in, in big plantations. Um, but yeah, the balloon effect is, is, is it's, it's the um, eternal problem. Senator Ted Stevens once referred to it as whack-a-mole. <laughs> you know, we keep beating that thing on one hole, we keep popping up another. Uh, there's simply too much land out there to grow this stuff. If you look at the peak production year in 2001 of coca throughout, the, throughout South America, it was about 849 square miles of coca. Now, and that's enough to meet the entire world's demand for, for, for traditional use, for cocaine, and plus all the cocaine that's inter interdicted and, and destroyed. Now, 849 square miles, you take the square root of that, it comes out to 29, which means that all the coca necessary for, to supply the entire world 
can be grown on a square piece of land 29 miles on a side. Now, in South America alone, there are more than 2.5 million square miles suitable for growing coca. So it, 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 it's, a, it's a needle in a haystack search, and it just moves from one place to the next. Indeed. Now, uh, let's talk a bit about Witness for Peace. I was very impressed with the uh, the knowledge, the, the, as I said in the intro, the, the caliber of the knowledge the, that each person brought to this. A lot of people involved in uh, trying to awaken U.S. officials to these problems which we helped create. But tell us uh, about Witness for Peace. Yeah, I've been a proud board member for five years, and it's an organization very near and dear to my heart. Um, and Witness has been around for more than 20 years. You can go to our website, witnessforpeace.org. And we've taken U.S. citizens to Latin America and the Caribbean uh, to look at the effects of U.S. policies firsthand. And we meet with all different actors. We meet with you know the military, the police, the U.S. embassy, the government officials. But we also meet with uh, you know human rights organizations, peasant farmers groups, indigenous uh, groups, uh, the church, human rights organizations. Uh, so we meet with a full spectrum of, of people. And our idea is that look, you will come to your own conclusions about what you you take from this experience. And at the end of it, you're, we we meet with the U.S. embassy so that you, as a citizen, can express your concerns um, and reflect on what you saw. And when you get back home, we give you training on on how to you know reach out to local media and how to talk to your uh, to your you know local constituencies and your representatives and that sort of thing. And so it's a real grassroots model for changing U.S. foreign policy. Uh, plus, it's a great way to spend, you know, 10 days or two weeks. It, it, it beats sitting on the beach in Cancun with a bunch of gringos getting drunk and being obnoxious, right? <laughs> you actually get to meet with people you'll never have a chance to meet with otherwise. We take care of all the logistics. We provide the translators. Uh, we, we take care of everything. So it's a, it's a great way to see the world. And, and I dare say um, educate yourself a, a great deal. As I say, I learned... Um a whole lot more than I expected. I thought I was bringing something to this, and no, no, I was bringing a sponge with which to absorb uh, this experience. Uh, we did put together a lot of, uh, I think I got about 18 hours of video that uh, we'll be producing for distribution through the Drug Truth Network. It has an interview in there with Sanho out there in the middle of a, that kato uh, of, of coca. And, and it gives us the opportunity, I think, for all of us to uh, to learn what's being done in our name and and speaking of that let's talk about that law 1008 mil ocho i think you uh, referenced that perhaps coming out of foggy bottoms was uh, didn't get translated into spanish until some well that summer. was that was plan colombia uh, okay <laughs> but, but mil ocho law 1008 was a law that was very much inspired by or pushed by the u.s embassy and when it was first enacted i mean this was we created the, the black hole of Guantanamo long before 9-11. Um, and we did this in, in other countries, and specifically Bolivia. So Law 1008 is an ultra-draconian law that basically it's Napoleonic code. You're, pro you're, you're, you're guilty, assumed guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And historically, some of the, the backlogs uh, on these cases were so tremendous that people were waiting up to seven years before seeing a judge, uh, before you're even told you're, you're being charged with something. That's how bad the backlog used to be. Uh, and just, you know, people have historically, uh, and just recently as well, uh, conducted nationwide protests where the prisoners would actually sew their lips shut with, with needle and thread because no one would hear their cries. Uh, the, the law is so unjust, it, it, it rounds up mostly very low-level people. Someone, a poor peasant farmer who's paid maybe $200 uh, to take a pack, package on a bus from one city to the next uh, of coca paste. Uh, 
and they're charged as narco traffickers. And it shows up in our, 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 our reports from the State Department as being, you know, narco-terrorists uh, been apprehended. Uh, in fact, these are poor peasant farmers who are, who are paid, you know, a small amount of money uh, to take this risk because they're desperately poor. And then, as you say, just locked up, they can't make bond, can't see an attorney, can't uh, uh, do anything until the courts decide to hear their case. I, I understand that the law has had a slight revision and that many of these that have been locked up for three, five, and seven years, once they go to trial and what little bit of evidence is presented, that they're, they're let go with no, uh, no compensation or anything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, this is it's outrageous. Um, and it's one of those, of all the things this government does to make me ashamed of being an American, uh, this has got to be one of, one of the worst. Um, it is absolutely, it, it would be thrown out uh, of any U.S. court as blatantly unconstitutional in a heartbeat. And yet this is the kind of stuff we force down the throats of, of Bolivians. Uh, and it's caused a lot of outrage, quite frankly. And it should. And and it and it it will uh, echo for a while. I'm I'm certain of that. Now uh, we was it in Cochabamba? We got a chance to uh, tour the the male uh, prison there. We got a chance to talk with the prisoners. They had some ideas on uh, how they could provide for their own welfare because let's face it, the government uh, what is it thirty seven cents a day they provide Only like thirty eight cents a day on average to take care of a prisoner. Uh, that's not enough to buy you, you know, a happy meal, much less <laughs> anything. Provide, you know, shelter and, and health care and, and food. Um, the prisoners have to support themselves, and so they have to have little industries. Uh, they might make some furniture or make some toys or, or do something to earn a little bit of money uh, to help uh, pay for their for their upkeep. Um, and it's a scandal that they have to do that. But uh, these prisoners wanted to make uh, toy toy trucks, wooden trucks, um, to sell in the international market. You know they weren't they weren't the nicest trucks in the world, but you know, but considering where it came from, um, you know, it's an extraordinary effort, and it's something that uh, you know I would hope that our government um, through USAID would support you know local initiatives like that. And and let's talk about the prison itself. I, I mean, the prisoners were articulate, uh, uh, quite persistent in trying to present their ideas, and I, I give them a great deal of credit for that. But uh, they, as as the meeting wrapped up, they they had a chance to show a few of us their lodgings, if you will. And I went with one of the prisoners, and and because he was a spokesman, and I I think had some money, he had his own cell. Many of them sleep just uh, uh, on the concrete floors or the stairwells. I understand. Yeah, it, it's 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 hell on earth. Um, you know, and this was one of the uh, I don't want to say one of the better prisons I've been to in the region, but yeah, actually it was a little bit nicer in that they weren't facing this the, like the jungle heat of of Colombia and the Amazon, for instance. Uh, this was actually temperate climate, but the conditions were absolutely horrid. Uh, people were crammed into all kinds of spaces. You had to climb up these little ladders to you know get into your little hutch um, when you might have a you know a couple of roommates. Uh, you basically have enough room to lie down. Um, and and that's it. Bend it to waste. I I the the little room I went to. Uh, I I got terrible claustrophobia. I could only stand it about a minute and a half. Uh, I would describe it as about four and a half by six feet uh, long and about three and a half to four and a half feet high. It kind of angled. Yeah, at the end of a very long, dark, narrow <laughs> tunnel. It was just absolutely creepy to go in there. It, it was. And, and again, that is a direct result. That is what the U.S. sought. You know, they, they, they want to inflict as much 
punishment in the name of the drug war as as is possible. I mean, that's all I can interpret from this. Yeah, I mean, if if you think mandatory minimums are bad in the United States, imagine what happens if you don't even have a judge to even hear a case for years, and you're just thrown in there, you know, and you you can't make the bail, and and you're screwed. And, and well, and it, it even compounds a little further if I bring up the thought that uh, I believe in that one prison, just so overcrowded. They also there were four hundred prisoners, and uh, if I remember right, one hundred wives and about two hundred fifty children living in those quarters. Uh, yeah, uh, talk about that. Son. Yeah, uh, th these were very old prisons designed like a century ago to you know house uh, maybe a couple of dozen prisoners, and this is what they're they're forced to put up with these days is to, is to cram that many people uh, into these old dilapidated buildings. Um, this is this is human warehousing at its at its most grotesque, um, and most of these people are are there for you know nonviolent small drug charges, and a lot of them are there for precursor chemicals, uh, which aren't even involved with drugs necessarily. So there are all kinds of precursors that are are forbidden or are heavily regulated, like toilet paper. If you're caught with more than a couple of rolls of toilet paper, because it can be used to dry coca paste or as filter. Um, Things like baking soda, which can be used to, to refine uh, a coca paste. Um, if you're caught with a with more than a, than a small envelope of it, uh, they sell it in small packets over there. But if you buy have a box of Arm and Hammer baking soda that you would find in a refrigerator, you could end up thrown in prison. Uh, and and good luck, you know, till you see a judge. Um, there's all kinds of things, you know, gasoline, acetone, all the bleach, um, and all kinds of quantities of these things are restricted. Um, Sonho, let's talk about uh, you, the organ main organization you work with, the Institute for Policy Studies. Tell mm -hmm. us a bit about that organization. Uh, we've been around for uh, more than four decades. We're the oldest multi-issue progressive think tank in Washington, D.C. And we try to combine scholarship with activism to make social change. So we have a number of different projects um, that have a social justice intersection involving both domestic policy and foreign policy. And my work is in drug policy, which kind of transcends both domestic and, and foreign policy. All but right. we also have projects working on global warming, on the Middle East, on the Iraq War, on economic justice in the United States, um, all these different areas. And, and in that website, sir? It's www.ips-dc.org. Thank you. Um, now, you guys uh, are not going to stop with this trip to Bolivia. This was the, the first uh, official uh, Witness for Peace trip to Bolivia? Well, actually, I, I, I did an experimental trip about two years ago. Uh, and so this is now the first official Witness for Peace trip to Bolivia. There will be many more to come. Um, as well as I, I lead trips to Bolivia as well as Colombia, as do other people. Um, and so if people are interested in traveling and seeing the drug war and other social justice issues firsthand, uh, just go to our website, www.witnessforpeace.org, and go to the travel section. You'll see a travel section. Uh, you'll see a schedule of all the upcoming delegations to going to different countries. All right, and um, and uh, speaking of uh, other uh, concerns that you guys in investigate, development and uh, etc. We did make that trip to the mines uh, up in uh, Oruro, uh, the mining yeah, uh -huh. uh, town. And uh, a quick side story I wanted to share with the listeners. Uh, a couple of weeks before we were there, apparently one uh, uh, union of miners versus another, one had actually rolled tires full of dynamite down the mountainside into the little uh, camp or village there uh, near the mine, uh, killing miners, destroying homes. Uh, explain that situation, please. 
Well, it's, it's complicated. There's um, there because of the rise in commodity prices uh, for minerals throughout the world. Um, the, the value of tin and, and other uh, minerals has gone up considerably. And so now there are miners from the state mining company, uh, often referred to as salaried miners, versus the, um, the independent miners who, who go to work for themselves. They're often called uh, collective miners. Um, and they've been fighting over who gets to mine where. Um, and so it, it sounds scary, you know, these dynamite attacks. But in the United States, uh, they would do the same thing with guns. But in Bolivia, people don't have many guns, and miners, of course, use dynamite all the time. And so it's not like they're they're using you know huge strap shrapnel filled IEDs like in in, in Iraq or anything. Um, they're tossing dynamite around because that's what they're that's what they they're used to. Um, but yes, they did uh, cause a lot of damage in one particular instance where it destroyed like 27 homes um, and caused a lot of damage. But, you know, when, you, when people are fighting that desperately uh, for the right to mine, which is one of the most hellish occupations on earth, uh, the mining conditions and the poverty, uh, it is just uh, unthinkable. And the safety standards, I mean, most American miners wouldn't be caught dead going down these, these tunnels. Um, and yet this is what they're willing to fight over. Uh, this is what they have to fight over. This, this is a country that is th- that poor. Well, and, and it, many of the... Uh... I think they switch occupations, but many of these miners went on to become coca growers um, in the last few years have fought battles with the police and the military for the right to have that coca to for the right to grow this stuff and distribute it legally they uh, the desperate straits do call for desperate time uh, times i don't know get it backwards there but uh, I guess the the point being that they all seem. Every person I met in Bolivia seemed willing to discuss options, seemed willing to work with the U.S. to find a better way and to uh, to, to build a more prosperous future. Uh, 30 seconds, please uh, uh, give us your thoughts there. Samuel. Yeah, the Bolivians want to reach an accommodation with the U.S., and there are some um, uh, reasonable people within the U.S. State Department who actually want to maintain decent relations with Bolivia. Uh, this is one country where the U.S. can't afford to alienate yet another regime in Latin America. Uh, we're, we're down to one ally, basically, which is Colombia now. And so the Bush administration can't afford to lose another uh, a country to, to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, for instance, and fall into that orbit. Um, but, you know, the drug warriors are still very resistant. Yeah, I, that's it for sure. Um, well, Mr. San Ho Tree, Institute for Policy Studies and uh, Witness for Peace, we thank you for being with us today here on Century of Lies. And you know I'll be in touch soon, San Ho. Thanks, Dean. It was right. a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Physical stimulation, appetite suppression, the prevention of altitude sickness through increased oxygen supply. Time's up. The answer, as is so obvious in the lives of millions of Bolivians, coca, mother coca. All right, my friends, that's uh, about it. I don't have any new stations to report this week. Uh, I don't know. I haven't been around. I guess that's why. But uh, if there's anybody out there auditioning uh, any of the Drug Truth Network programs, please uh, send me an email to dean at drugtruth.net. I'll tack you up on the affiliates page, and you're totally paid for as long as you want to carry the programs. We're we're always glad to have you with us. Uh, the This week we'll have on the uh, Cultural Baggage Show... Uh, Mr. Chris Crane, he's from Students for Sensible Drug Policy. He was uh, 
heading up the effort, this uh, conference they had this past week in Washington, D.C., and we'll be talking about that as well. And uh, you guys are the answer. You know, I, I do work my butt off trying to inform, educate, and motivate you. I can't do it by myself. I'm glad to say there was a recent uh, authorship by a Mr. Judge uh, Michael McSpadden here in Houston, right here in Gulag City, saying that this drug war is not working, that maybe we ought to lessen the sentences, and we'll have a little bit more about that this week on uh, cultural baggage as well. Law enforcement against prohibition. These men and women have served in the trenches of the drug war as prosecutors, judges, cops, guards, and wardens. They have seen firsthand the utter futility of our policy and now work together to end drug prohibition. Please visit leap.cc. Please do your part. Visit drugtruth.net. For the Drug Truth Network and Engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker urging you to investigate the century of lies.